This is a Federal News Network podcast. So-called black swan events seem to be happening in flocks. The pandemic, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, earthquakes, floods. For government, it all adds up to the need for resilience and preparation. And according to new research by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, a technological approach. We get more now from Syracuse University professor and retired Government Accountability Office Managing Director Chris Mim. Chris, good to have you back. Well, Tom, it's a pleasure to be back with you. And good to know you're still in the swim here, worrying about government managerial matters. Uh, tell us the gist of this report, because, I mean, a lot of money's been appropriated for pandemics and whatnot in the past several years. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned in the opening, and I, I think it's a great way of putting it, is that these black swans were now be confronted with flocks of them. And so the idea behind this, and it's a partnership of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, the National Academy for Public Administration, and the uh, IBM Institute for Business Value. They came together and are, are sponsoring a series of roundtables with experts to discuss what capabilities that governments at any level need to have in place in order to respond to these flocks of black swans. This is the first of those roundtables dealing with the emergency preparedness. And so what we did is we brought together a group of recognized experts here in the United States and internationally to tease out some issues. And our idea here was not to try reinventing the wheel. As you said, there's plenty of good ideas out there and people that have been studying all this. But the roundtable participants wanted to come up with a, a set of specific and practical short-term suggestions that governments at any level could use in order to better prepare for disasters, any type of disaster. All right. And what floated to the top of the list? Well, there are really six things that came to the top of the list, and probably the first, both in terms of the presentation of the paper, and it's available on the IBM Center website, is that, and, and probably the first in terms of importance, is making sure that you build the network before a disaster takes place. There's a, a wonderful adage that uh, I'm sure you and your listeners are, are familiar with from disaster preparedness, is that the middle of a crisis is not the time to be exchanging business cards. In other words, the, the success of any response effort is going to be based on experiences of organizations and even more important people working together and existing relationships that they can build on relationships of trust and knowledge. Those can all need to be built ahead of time, and they can be through things like memos of understanding, you know, table talk exercises, joint training that brings together a variety of partners. And this just sits at levels of government, but it also includes the private sector, the not-for-profit sector. All of these have different ways of doing business. That needs to, in a sense, be sorted out as much as it can be ahead of time. Because so at the, the federal level, I mean, a lot of this is done already because we have a Department of Homeland Security that has all of these components, Coast Guard, FEMA, and so forth, that do respond. So it seems like the network needs to be strengthened, perhaps intergovernmentally, say at the state and local level with federal, and again, as you say, with the commercial partners. No, absolutely. Is that, you know, part of the challenge that we run into here in the United States is obviously with our, our federalism, there's tensions built into the very structure of, of the way we operate, tensions between the federal governments and states and states and their localities and then tribal governments in there. Those are, are structural. They're not going to be fully resolved. They're part of our, our, our constitutional system. What we were looking at or what the participants were looking at is accepting those. How can they better work together? 
the other point, and, and you, you know, we're just making this, it gets into one of the other practices, and that is building local capabilities on this, is that, you know, disasters are fundamentally local in their implementation or their effect, and local governments have vastly different needs and vastly different capabilities. Federal government, state government needs to understand that and work with local governments to build a platform of capabilities across all local governments. There's certainly ways of, of doing that through mutual aid compacts among local governments, regional uh, agreements, online learning, that basically where local governments can learn from one another. We're speaking with Chris Mim, retired GAO Managing Director and Fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. And another idea I wanted to ask you about was establish a data strategy well before disaster strikes. That sounds like a tough one to actually accomplish because you don't know what the disaster will be and you don't know what data you'll need. You're exactly right on that, is that the basic approach here is to, to use an all-hazards approach. I mean, there are some types of data and the types of information that are very situational, very specific to a type of disaster. There are other types, though, that are more generic or cut across different types of disasters which may confront a, a local community. The point that the participants were making on here is that, especially these days, and especially in the moment of a crisis where there's a whole variety of different information and data that are coming at decision makers with what is kind of the notion of multiple sources of truth is not helpful to decision-making. It can undermine trust, undermine you know the, the speed of decision-making and even the quality of those decisions. And so we're never going to have perfect data in the moment of a disaster. What we want to be able to do is try as much as possible to establish beforehand as to what are going to be the essential data elements that decision-makers are going to need, how is that going to be collected, by whom is it going to be collected, what level of assurance do we need in terms of quality. Again, perfection is not the goal because you're in a moment of a crisis. The perfection is good enough and making sure that we can have trust and confidence in the information that decision makers are receiving. And let me ask you about step six that the group that you convened talked about, and that is establishing a workforce strategy to meet current and especially surge and future needs. Because to some extent, again, FEMA can call on people from other agencies that can be tasked to disasters. And then, you know, a few weeks later, they go back to their own home agency. And there's a cadre of people in the federal government that do that. So it sounds like they were talking about expansion on that idea. Very much. And you're right. There is a pre-existing way that FEMA can tap into other resources to, you know, to build surge capacity. And obviously there's, you know, other levels of government have access to the guard down at the state level. What they were talking about here was a, a couple of things. One is the standard issue that I know you and your listeners are very familiar with, my former employer, the GAO high-risk list, and that is critical skills gaps across the federal government. And FEMA and disaster response is no different than anywhere else in government on that, is making sure that we have the right people, right skills in place, and in particular with the disaster, making sure they're there. The second aspect that they were looking at here is, is the absolutely vital importance of making sure, especially on the ground, that we are sensitive to issues of diversity and inclusion in our workforce, that we have people from the communities that are in a sense being served, where the recovery is taking place, that are representatives of that community. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that then we need to be sensitive to the emotional burden on first responders. I mean, we all saw those, I'm sure those very moving YouTube videos from nurses and other frontline health experts during the peak of COVID that were just, you know, urging people to take care. But at the same time, you could just see the emotional toll that it was taking on these first responders. We in it kind of think broadly about disaster preparedness, need to think about the mental health and well-being of first-line responders. And maybe tell us a little bit more about the methodology by which you came up with this list. You said a panel or some kind of a roundtable. Who was on it and how was it convened? And tell us a bit about the process. 
it was probably a half to three quarter day meeting that was held in Washington. And what we did is we brought together a series of experts, many of whom were uh, fellows of the National Academy of Public Administration. Names that will be obviously familiar to your listeners, Thad Allen, for example, um, the you know former commandant of the of the, the Coast Guard, Paris Glendening, former governor of Maryland, and many others. We also had participants overseas from OECD that could help us in building an international perspective on this. We worked very closely. The we is the collective we here, the IBM Center, NASA, and the Institute for Business Value at uh, IBM to identify a list, kept calling through that various list. The discussion then took place in which we really were charging the group to not, in a sense, reinvent the wheel, as I mentioned earlier, but let's get into a set of specific and practical and short-term things that governments can really do. There are some big structural issues and probably, you know, we need much more funding and kind of resilience and, and kind of, you know, how do we deal with climate change and all that. That's all vital, but that was part of a separate discussion or not part of this discussion. What we wanted to know was what are the key takeaways that a decision maker can need in order to begin to make sure that his or her community is better prepared. And just out of curiosity in research of this sort, you brought in people that, again, some of them are household names, the people you would think of first for that kind of discussion. How do you know you're not getting the black swan of thought that could really upend some of the shibboleths that a group like this is likely to bring with them because that's what they know from their careers. That's a, a great point, and it's you know certainly the challenge with any of these types of things that have a tendency to be DC-based is that we all get together, we've read each other's work, we you know, congratulate each other on all the great work that we're doing, and then it doesn't have any impact when actually on the ground to people that are out there having to implement this is the big question. So we did two things. One is that, as I mentioned, we made sure that we had an international perspective on this to break out of kind of the, the, the Washington consensus. We also had diversity of thought of different leaders that they came into Washington from organizations from around the, the U.S. and it wasn't so it wasn't just a, a traditional D, you know D.C.-based uh, meeting on this. And then also at the at the end when all this was done and this was part of my responsibility in, in helping to pull this together was to be somewhat familiar with the other literature to make sure that we were actually having making a contribution that we weren't just repeating something that had been you know published by someone else just a week ago <laughs> or something like that that uh, that could be nice because it could be confirming but it wouldn't be making an independent contribution. Got it. Well, it's a pretty good read. Chris Mim teaches public administration at Syracuse University. He's a former GAO managing director and also a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. I don't know many hats, but Chris, great to have you back. Tom, it's my great pleasure. Anytime. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL 
uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired. And um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and and the thing that that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh, you know we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams uh, bowl together golf together play soccer basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.